0: My name is Bob Dell, and I am alcoholic. Alcohol. Through God's grace that I've accessed and maintained in my life through the principles of the 12 steps process that I found in the big book, good sponsorship, a lot of commitments, and bushels of newcomers. I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering substances since Halloween 1978. That's America. Uh, I, I want to thank Ray and the members of the committee for uh, the privilege of coming down here, participating in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, this, is the, this is the fluff, the icing on the cake. If you want to really uh, find out what I do, uh, where the meat and potatoes are in Alcoholics Anonymous, for me, come to Las Vegas. Mondays at noon, I'll take you with me into a, into a rescue mission monday night i'll take you to a step workshop uh tuesday at noon i'll take you into a skid row detox uh tuesday night i'll take you to another step workshop wednesday at noon i'll take you in back into the rescue mission wednesday night if i could get you cleared i'll take you into the county jail thursday at noon i'll take you into back into the detox and then thursday night i'll take you to my home group the main meeting of the this the, all these other meetings are satellites so. of, and that's really the meat and potatoes for me it's it's going to those hospital and institution meetings and sitting with guys and helping them go through the steps and going through that book and listening to the fifth steps and, and the privilege of encouraging scared people to make amends that are frightening and watching guys get their kids back and uh, watch the lights go on as they start to sponsor people. and That's really the meat and potatoes. This is the icing on the cake here. This is great. But that's what keeps me alive. I wouldn't stay sober. I don't think we have a right to do this unless we're doing that other stuff, really. Uh, I have a sponsor. I sponsor guys. I step up to the plate. It's my, I, live in, I live in a city. We joke and we call it the hitting bottom capital of the world, Las Vegas, Nevada. But I'll tell you something. On the square, if you get it that your primary purpose, that your whole life has brought you to this point so you can be useful to guys who are sick like you're sick. Las Vegas is a gold mine. I'm telling you, it's a gold mine. I love living there for that purpose. Uh, there's an endless supply of twelve-step work to do that keeps even the most self-centered people like me out of myself on a regular basis. I want to thank Len for uh, picking me up at the airport. He, we had a nice talk on the way over here, and uh, I, I know that he's a, a really tremendous member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's helped an awful lot of people here. And AA really is the backbone of Alcoholics Anonymous here, and the people in AA really don't appreciate it uh, very well. Uh, <laughs> I'm a- I may, not get, I may need to ride to the airport now. <laughs> okay. You got me covered, good. Uh, this has been a great week. I tell you, I love Gary's talk last night. Uh, I'm a big book act fundamentalist. I'm an activist. Uh, I, I didn't mean to be when I got here, and I didn't want to be. Uh, it's a process of elimination. Everything else hurts too much. Everything else doesn't work. I've become the guy that I used to judge so harshly when I was in and out of the rooms. I've become that guy. And I didn't mean to. It's just nothing else works. Um, I I I know there's a lot of new people here. I I really want to welcome you. I'm real glad you're here. I want you to know that I came to Alcoholics Anonymous for I've been coming to meetings since I was a young kid in 1970 uh, through an institution. I didn't get sober until 1978. If you're sitting here and you've been a relapser for a number of years, uh, I'm your guy. There's only two guys here that I really care about that I have anything to say to. And it's the guy who can't get a foothold in Alcoholics Anonymous that you suspect that something's wrong with you that's not wrong with the rest of the people because when you stop drinking, you're not like them. Um, I'm talking to you because you are me. And I'm also talking to another guy, the guy that's leaving Alcoholics Anonymous, and he doesn't even know he's leaving, and he's doing it one judgment at a time. And I'm talking to you because I am you also, and I've been in danger of that in my sobriety. Uh, uh, I came to meetings, and I've come to meetings. Most of the, I've gone to thousands and thousands of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've got to tell you the truth, most of the time I don't, really, I don't get it why I'm here. Uh, I came for years because I, I had to get things signed for the courts. I came for a period of time because I was in places that made me go to meetings. Uh, I, came, uh, I came for, in, in this period of this last 26, a little over 26 years, I've come at times to see my friends. I've come at other times to meet newcomers. I've come at other times because my sponsor told me to. I've come at other times because I had a commitment and I didn't want to miss it and look bad. I've come at other times because I've been afraid or I've had resentments or financial problems or relationship problems and I've been wrong every time. And sometimes I don't really get it why I'm here until I'm in the middle of the meeting and I realize that I'm here for alcoholism. That I have a bad case and it's never gone away. And sometimes it looks like God brings me here and brings me to this place for all these other reasons but the really reason I'm here is I have alcoholism. And this is the only place... I've ever come in my whole life that works for me and it's not just the meetings it's it's the in, it's the reminder in here of this way of life that I have to live in order to be okay with me. Um, so if you're sitting here and you're, and you're new or you' maybe you're not so new and you're here for a lot of other reasons. maybe you're like maybe you're like this guy who goes up to Alaska and he goes up there to hunt bear. And he's searching around, hunting in the woods, and he finally spots this little brown bear. And he gets a bead on this bear, and he shoots him dead. Goes over to skinning, tap on his shoulder. He turns around. It's a huge black bear. The black bear said, "You killed my cousin by right side so to kill you, but I'm not going to kill you. But I'm going to have my way with you." <laughs> and man, he does, and it's bad too. This guy's in is in a hospital for a week, can't walk. It's really bad. He gets a resentment, and he says, "I'm going to get that black bear." He goes back up to Alaska, and he searches, takes him a week and a half, finds that black bear, gets a bead on him, shoots him dead. About ready to skin him, there's a tap on his shoulder. He turns around, there's a huge, huge grizzly bear. The grizzly bear says, you killed my cousin by right side of kill you, but I'm not, but I'm going to have your, my way with you, and it's going to be real bad. And oh, man, it was bad. This guy was in the hospital three weeks, couldn't walk for almost a month, raised his voice an octave. It was bad, I'm telling you. <laughs> He gets out of the hospital. He's got a resentment. He says, "I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that grizzly bear." He goes back to Alaska. Takes him three weeks. Stalks that bear gets a beat on him. Shoots him dead. He's ready to skin him. There's a tap on his shoulder. He turns around. There's the hugest polar bear he's ever seen. polar bear says, uh, "You're not here for the hunt, nor are you. <laughs> maybe you're not here while you think you're here. <laughs> and maybe sometime... In this weekend, you will hear something that will connect you here with a purpose you never knew you had. And we sometimes, I think, I think I I treat my alcoholism as I claim my primary purpose. Um, Bill Wilson said something in his story. Bill was a tremendous visionary. He said that unless the alcoholic will enlarge his spiritual life by self sacrifice and continual work with other alcoholics. He will never survive the certain, mean they're coming, certain trials and low spots ahead. And I was given a purpose, and my purpose is it's not is to serve an ethic higher than myself. I'm the guy who served myself and my needs, my wants, my gratification all my life. And I came here broken, and you gave me an ethic and a service and a thing to serve that was greater than me. Uh, I. 1977, I was in a halfway house, and I'd been a chronic relapser by this time for since uh, 1970, actually. And this was the first few years I was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was kind of AA was like a foxhole for me, and I would just I didn't real I don't think I really wanted to get sober. I wanted to get the heat off, and I was in trouble in my life. I'm the guy that I go on a run and I can't shut it down when you're supposed to and I always burn my life to the ground always always burn it to the ground and I come back into alcoholics Anonymous to recoup but the last couple years wasn't like that the last couple years man i I'm just at the end of my rope and I uh, I'm trying not to drink and I, because I just I just destroy myself and I've wrung all the fun out of it and it's brutal now and I'm in this halfway house and I I'm sober about 10, maybe 11 months, which, with untreated alcoholism, of for an alcoholic of my type, that is a tremendously long time. Because when I stop drinking, I get a feeling like I'm doing time. And I stop drinking, and I become progressively more restless. This inability to be settled anywhere, where I just, I just, I don't know where I'm supposed to be, but it's not here. And I, I'm irritable, and because... Life and people, especially, just rub me the wrong way. I'm the guy when I quit drinking, I just become acutely aware of what's wrong with everybody. You know what I mean? And, and I get this sense of urgency to tell them. And if you're like that, it's, uh, sobriety's a lonely business for a guy like that. And I'm chronically malcontent. I, I, go th- I there's something wrong with me that I just the shine of things wears off so quickly for me. And nothing really rings my bell very long. I'm the guy that can see something. Oh, this is it. That ain't it. Oh, this is it. Oh, that ain't it either. And I just go through life like that. Just excitement and disillusionment. Excitement and disillusionment. And so I drink. And I drink because the these... Emotions and my relationship to the rest of the world, and the loneliness and the feelings of anxious apartness that I get as a result of being the judgmental guy that, that walls himself off from everybody else, eventually backs me into a corner. And I'm in this halfway house and I'm sober, I don't know, 10 or 10 months maybe, or maybe 11. A long time for me, being restless, irritable, and discontent. A long time with these low level depressions. A long time with a feeling of uselessness. A long time with a feeling like abstinence is about is feels like I'm doing time. And I tough it out. I'm a, I'm a short fuse alcoholic. I think I think every one of us, every one of us without exception, the minute we put down the last drink, with untreated alcoholism, it's like light a fuse. And some I went for I have a guy that I sponsored. He went he went dry with untreated alcoholism for twenty-three years before I took him through the steps. And to say he was a little brisk was, a, was a beyond, I mean, that's an overstatement. This guy, he didn't, even, he didn't even, not only didn't he have any friends left, he didn't even have any acquaintances. I mean, he was, oh. But he has a long fuse. He's, a, he's an ex-Navy chief. He's a tough guy. I'm a short fuse kind of guy. And I, some people can, are, are situated with finances and stuff that they can throw a lot of, a lot of stuff at the vacancy. And I used, to, I used to imagine that if I was properly financed, maybe I could still stay sober long-term if I could arrange my life with a non-stop series of self-gratification events. You know what I mean? Like a, a new $80,000 car every third day, a new Harley every fifth day, a new girlfriend every seventh day, a new house in there, a new trip. You know, if I could just keep that stuff there, maybe I wouldn't have to get to that point where I, there's no longer anything I could put between me and me but I always get to that point and I get to it quickly where I can't put anything between me and me and then it's just me and I've never liked that much and my big secret is I ain't real happy about me and I ain't really happy about sober and I, I'm the chronic malcontent so I'm in this place and I'm sober 10 maybe 11 months and I can't, I can't take it anymore and I, I, I don't want to burn my life to the ground I don't want to get in trouble I don't want to lose my place to live but I got to do something here. I got to, and so I called up a guy I'd been in the detox with, and he was back to drinking, and I suspected he was. and He lives a couple towns over. lives in this little trailer, and he's telling me, he says, "Man, you ought to come down here." He says, "I found this rock and roll bar with great bands." He says, "I got some Thai stick, and there's some good-looking girls there." You know, I've been sober a long time now, 10 or 11 months. I've had about as much fun in sobriety as I can stand. And I'm, I'm ready. I'm over ready. So he's telling me about this. I'm drooling on the phone. Oh, man, this is going to be great. And I got a weekend pass out of there, and I got a plan. I got a plan because I'm still a victim of, of an—I'm a victim of an illusion. The illusion that I, under the right set of circumstances, if I really get behind it, I'll be able to control and enjoy my drinking. And what that means is that I'll be able to jumpstart the party and get back to the good old days, you know, when it was magic. And I'll be able to control it enough to keep the damage down to something I can live with. That's the illusion. I think I have that much control. I never was so deluded to think that I I wouldn't pay some kind of price. I just think I have enough control to keep it down. And I uh, go to... I meet that guy, and I'll tell you the best part of that run, as it was the last... Three years I drank probably was the couple hours before it started. You know, the anticipation, it's going to be great. And I meet with that guy and we shoot down to this bar he'd been telling me about. And I'm drinking double shots of 100 proof Southern Comfort beer back because when, when you only got a weekend, you got to get downtown now. You need that 100 proof, right? <laughs> so I want to get downtown now. And so I'm throwing those shots back, waiting for. Wait for the kid, waiting for it, the magic to happen. Waiting for it like it was when I was 20 years old. You know what it, when, it's, when, you're, when it's working, it's just marvelous. Remember the good old days when, man, you'd get that glow on a guy. I could walk into a dance or a party or somewhere, and I don't fit anywhere, and man three or four or five drinks, I could come out and play. I could talk to people. About seven drinks, I loved everybody. <laughs> I love you, man. You remember that? Just, I remember moments with the gang of guys I hung around with where I just feel so connected to them. Almost bring tears to my eyes. <clears throat> I, could, I could be funny, and I could, I could shoot pool better, and I could shoot pool, play the guitar, and sing better than I could play the guitar. I could dance, and I can't dance. <laughs> I could be deep. Remember three o'clock in the morning and deep, cracking the secrets of the universe, right? I just say things that would just blow my mind, you know And then I sober up and I'm always back to being me again. And I'll tell you, a couple of years at, years after I lost the ability to recapture that, I chased it under an illusion. I'm going to recapture it again. Some of us die. Because we believe the we you know what delusion is? It's psychotic wishful thinking. It's all the evidence is the party's over, but I don't want it to be over, and I don't want it to be over so bad that I start to imagine it's not going to be over this time, to the point where I believe it. And I, I went on that last drunk, and I, I'm trying throwing down those double shots, and trying to jumpstart that deal because I want to have some fun. I want to. I'm just dying of loneliness and abstinence. I don't fit very good. I'm depressed. I'm half depressed all the time. I, I, do, I don't do too good. And I can't jump start. And yet the phenomenon of craving always is waiting for me when I start to take a drink. And because the phenomenon of craving is on me as a result of the, the effect of alcohol, that's the, all that's left in the bottle for me now is this phenomenon of craving. And so I'm hammering down those drinks trying to frantically get some relief and, I, and I, all I get anymore and all I got was the last three years was oblivion. There's no more party. And as I'm sinking, I remember, sitting, I remember sitting in that bar and I'm, I'm depressed. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost like so depressed I, I'm feeling sorry for myself. And I'm looking at the people in the bar that are laughing and dancing with the girls and the guys over here that are shooting pool and all that stuff and the fun that's going on. And I'm really sinking into this abyss of depression and self-pity because I could remember when I was all of that. And I ain't that no more. And I can't get that back. And I knew something within me that I did not want to know. I knew that the deal was up. I can drink myself to death. I can drink myself into oblivion. But I will never recapture that again. And I knew that because I'd been trying for three years. And I, uh, I got some amphetamines because I was starting to sink into oblivion. And if you only got a weekend, you don't want to miss nothing. And I uh, got some amphetamines. I drank all that night, all the next day, uh, late, late Saturday night. And uh, the last thing I remember is we went back to this guy's trailer, and uh, he p- goes and passes out. And I'm supposed to crash on his couch, but I'm still awake. And I'm the kind of alcoholic if I'm awake, I ain't done drinking. You know what I mean? I don't. I just. I'm not. And I, but I'm out of money and he left his wallet on the kitchen counter and his car keys so I, I'm not a thief but I do know when a loan's appropriate I took a little money out of his wallet and I got his car keys and I'm going out to, to finish the deal My, here's, I'm going to go I'm going to go down to this bar it's just about ready to close I'm going to go down there I'm going to load up with a couple like a series of double shots real quick I'm going to buy a six pack of beer maybe malt liquor 16 ounce to bring back to the trailer so I can put myself to sleep because I got to put myself to sleep because I, I don't <laughs> I don't do it any other way. I can't just sleep. Not when the phenomenon of craving's on me. I can't. I have to pass out. And the next, I, I must have went to that bar and started those double shots and that's the last thing I remember I'm vaguely going in there and the next thing I know I'm coming to a county jail. Not an unusual thing for me. I've come to a lot of times in county jails and not remember being arrested. And I'm in there, and I find out I'm in there for a hit-and-run DUI and a stolen car. I'm facing a couple years in a state penitentiary. I kind of missed the mark of keeping down to reasonable damage in my life here. And uh, they gave me my phone call. And I'll I'll never forget this. It was a horrible, depressing, awful, awful feeling. There's not a person on the face of the earth to call. There's nobody left. And I, I had parents that were non-alcoholic. I had parents that adored me, that loved me. And what I did to my parents is I gave them such an emotional battering over the years that they were forced to cut me out of their life. And they didn't, it didn't sit well with them because I loved me so much. It, it was so bad that my mother, who was a non-alcoholic, was on tranquilizers and th- seeing a therapist. And my father slept 15, 16 hours a day. Because he couldn't live with, the, with what was happening to their son that they had to push out of their life that they loved so much. And I often tried to tell other people how I didn't hurt anybody except me.
1: Right?
0: There was no women to call. I mean, it's not that I wouldn't have liked a relationship. It's just hard to get one going on when you're homeless. I mean, it's really... I mean, I mean what do you say to somebody? Sweetheart, you want to come back to the TV room in the halfway house and watch a movie? I mean, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of panache in that. I didn't have any more running partners anymore because I got to the point where, as the disease progressed and I'm losing my ability to get the effect and the ease and comfort, I drank more frantically. And so I'm the guy, if we get a, a jug of uh, Thunderbird or Richard Wild Irish Rose and I'm sharing it with you, a couple guys, I drink so, I'm so driven in my drinking, you're not going to get your share. And I don't even like people like that, and I'm that guy. I'm the guy that's selfish when it comes to drinking because I'm trying to keep the madness at bay. So there's no one to call, so I call. So i calling bail bondsmen, but you know they want you to have like a job and an address and stuff. I don't have any of that stuff. So I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in that, in that county jail, and I, I didn't go for recovery. I'll tell you, I'd given up on Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd been up to this time, I'd probably been in a... Oh, maybe 200, 300 meetings, I guess. Uh, and I didn't even want to go anymore. But I went to this meeting for two reasons. I went there because all I, I didn't have anything, any cigarettes. All I had was a little pouch of Bull Durham and some bugler papers that they, the county had given me. And I hate that stuff. And I also, I went in there because I knew from being around AA that people in alcoholics, so there's some people in AA that have a lot of money. There are people in AA that have influence, and I'm always trying to run an angle. Maybe I'll find somebody. Maybe I'll find somebody that will go to a judge or put my bail up or something. I don't know. So I'm sitting in this meeting in this place, in this kind of classroom kind of deal, waiting for the do-gooders from AA to come in. You know, they're always coming in places. It's not that I'm... I, and I'm not like them. And I'm not like them because I have I have experiential evidence that I'm not like them. And it primarily comes down to this. They quit drinking and look at them. They're everything I'm not. They quit drinking, and they're happy about everything. They're grateful. They have great success stories. They're just they're they're happy and sober. I know happy. I know sober. I don't know happy and sober. And I uh, I'm just I don't think I have alcoholism. I don't know what I have, but whatever I have, it's not the same thing that's wrong with these people in AA. Because I quit drinking, and I, I go to your meetings, and I'm not anything like you in here so I'm sitting in there and here comes the do-girders from AA and leading the pack is a guy named Woody and I, oh, I knew Woody I didn't want to see Woody Woody's, Woody used to bring the meetings into the detox I was in Woody used to bring meetings into the halfway house I was in Woody was one of those guys in AA that I just I tell you I couldn't stand him Woody's the kind of guy that sit in the back of the room and judge really harshly Woody's that kind of guy that, that talks about the steps and God and he's grateful for everything and he just Everything's funny to him, and there's nothing funny about nothing, you know. And here he comes. And on a good day, when things aren't really that bad in my life, I can kind of ha- handle a guy being around a guy like Woody, but this is not a good day. <laughs> and here he comes. And it, so I go up and I shake his hand. I said, you know, I'm, I went into some little spiel. I don't know what I said to him, you know, something along the lines of, you know, I'm sorry I let you and the guys in AA down. Or... Like I imagined everybody in AA went into mourning because I drank or something. (laughs) You know, I remember apologizing to him, and I I started telling him I had these plans, and I started telling him about the plans, about getting out of there, and I asked him if he'd help me, do you know anybody that can help me get out on bail, and I'm going to beat this, and I'm going to get into a good halfway house, and I started telling him, not like that one I was in, I started telling him what was wrong with the one I was in, and I was going to get some. Uh, go, they used to have money for alcoholism then, for Volk rehab money that would pay for you to go go to school from the government. I was telling them about my plan to do that. I'll be a maybe I'll be a doctor or lawyer or something, you know. <laughs> and Woody's just shaking his head, looking at me. And what he says to me, he says, "Kid, who are you kidding?" He said, "You're not going to stay sober." He said, "Who are you trying to fool here? You haven't hit a bottom." You haven't surrendered. Kids, you're not going to make it. And I didn't say anything to him because I don't do confrontation well sober. <laughs> you give me a pint of whiskey, I'd have been all over him. But sober, I'm, just, I'm this guy. I'm the guy who withdraws and I'll think at you. And I sat in that meeting and I thought at him. I thought at him deeply. And I went back to my cell that night and I, I ran those scenarios through my head about You know, what an idiot that guy is. What is he saying that to me for? You know, I don't need this negativity. I need positive reinforcement here. I don't need this negative stuff. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, what's he hit a bottom? What's he talking about? He doesn't know anything about me. He doesn't know I've lost everything. What does he mean hit a bottom? Him with his Cadillac and his big home and his good job and his wife and kids. He don't know nothing about me. Surrender. Surrender what? There's nothing left of me. A couple of years ago, I had some stuff. But that's all gone now. I don't know what he's talking about, surrender. I know exactly what he's talking about today. What he saw looked at me the way I've looked at probably over a thousand guys in institutions that I've been involved in nonstop for a little over 26 years. I've never gone to less than two and meetings a week. And I see myself in those guys every single week. And what Woody saw is he saw a guy that was dying of alcoholism that had, that had repeatedly and continually burnt his life to the ground and yet was insisting on being at the helm of his own ship in spite of what was happening to him. And I and I couldn't see that. And I didn't know when Woody said surrender, I, I, surrender what? Surrender what? There's only one thing I have to give up. And I believe this with everything in me. One thing. It's the hardest thing a guy like me will ever surrender and give up. And it's not the house, it's not the job, it's not the relationships, it's not the family. I, I've seen guys surrender, give the thing up, and they're still making six figures a year and have big homes and never went to jail or nothing. And they can surrender that one thing. And then there are other guys that can't. And they'll go all the way down past where I went and they'll be the guys that I know, I've known over the years that drank themselves into oblivion in some cheap hotel somewhere and then they threw up while they were passed out and they drowned in their own vomit or the guys that hang themselves or overdose on drugs or get shot in robberies that get out of control. Nice guys that would never hurt anybody. you know, And they go in there and they pull a gun at the wrong time and shoot somebody and then they get shot. And it just gets away from them because they can't give up the one thing. I didn't know what that one thing was until I heard a guy named Chuck, Chuck Chamberlain talk in early sobriety. When I heard him talk, I realized that this one thing, it had been surrendered within me, coming off my last drunk, and I didn't do it. It was really surrender. I was surrendered by the bottle. And what that thing was, was my judgment. In step three, when it says we made a decision to turn our will And our lives over to the care of God I didn't know I I didn't know what they were talking about I know what I try and I'm the guy who tries to turn my life over to God and I think my will's with it but I don't know what my will is so I'm retaining my will and it wasn't until I heard an attorney say this he said you're you know he's talking about wills and he said you know what your will your last will is don't you it's your last judgment you judge these people to be idiots they don't get nothing these people you judge to be good they get something and what I'm doing is I'm I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and I, I try tried some of the stuff you suggest. I'm trying to turn my life over to God, but I'm retaining my will. And if you do that, it's like God, here's my life, and there's a list coming of how it better go. <laughs> because I still I'm the great I am. I'm the guy who knows, right? And I uh, I didn't stay sober that after I got out of that county jail. A kind kind judge um, sentenced me to two years in a state penitentiary and then stayed the commitment he said that if you get good PO reports, good UAs make the restitution, do everything you're supposed to do, you come back in front of me in a year and if you've done all that we'll reduce this down to a misdemeanor and you'll be alright and if not, you're going to go do the two years and I'm in this place called the Ark House, which is its not even a treatment center, really. It's a homeless shelter for, run by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous on the north side of Pittsburgh. A guy named Chuck, Chuck K. And I'm in this place, and uh, I'm hanging on, and I'm hanging on, and I'm hanging on. I'm not drinking day in and day out, and week in and week out, and month in and month out. And I'm just getting it up to here. See, I'm the guy that when I stop drinking for all practical purposes, that is when I begin to suffer from alcoholism.
1: But it's such a subtle
0: suffering that it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and I, spent, I spent a lot of time in therapy with some great psychiatrists, but it never touched my alcoholism. I, take, I took all the medications that were available at the day, and it never did anything except eventually gave me just enough relief to hunger for more and eventually set off the phenomenon of craving. Or at least the obsession for more of an effect. I tried all that stuff and I I don't know what's wrong with me. But when I stopped drinking, this restless, irritable, and discontent thing that Silkworth talks about, the problem with that for me is it's not big restless, big irritable, big discontent. It's subtle. It goes right below the horizon. And it's just a slow emptiness in here that just gnaws away at my resolve not to drink. And I, you know what it's like? It's, it's, I, I saw this movie one time about this guy who was an American spy and he got captured by, I think it was the Chinese. And they're trying to torture secrets, some kind of information out of this guy. And they've beaten this guy with rubber hoses and, and you know for, for days. And this is a tough guy. He won't tell him nothing. And then finally this little doctor, this little Chinese doctor comes into the room and he says, he says, oh, I give you Chinese water torture, you tell me everything. And this big macho spy says, water torture, what are you going to do, Doc? I ain't telling you nothing. He says, I drop a drop of water on your forehead every few seconds and you tell me everything. The guy says, Doc, Doc, you hit me with rubber hoses for a week now. Didn't give you, you think a drop of water? Hit me, with, hit me with a fire hose. Hit me with buckets of water. Go do it. Do your best. He says, No, no. One drop. And they hit, he hits him with that first drop as he's strapped in that chair and he laughs it off. <laughs> hit me with another. No, <laughs> Nothing there. After a week, he'll tell him anything. And that's the way my alcoholism is. It doesn't make any sense to me. This malady of my spirit that this thing that comes over me when I stop drinking, no matter how tremendous my resolve is to not drink anymore, no matter how much I get it, that it is a bad idea that I will burn my life to the ground because I know I have the phenomenon of craving. I know I have the allergy. But the knowledge of having the allergy and the phenomenon of craving never has helped me. I have drank no one all about that. Because i got a malady of my spirit that always drives me back to drinking. The book says there comes a time when I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. The memory of the suffering and humiliation of of that last run have no effect on me at all. It just goes into some kind of blind spot where I can't see it anymore. And all I can see is the illusion. The illusion of maybe there will be some ease and comfort in it again like there was when when I was 20 years old. And so I, I'm in this place and I'm not drinking for as long as I can take it. And I went on my last run. and my, I, I went on the last run because I didn't know what else to do. I thought, I, I'm, gonna, I'm dying here. And I feel like that sitting in the middle of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, going to meetings and I'm dying here. I used to get this sick, sick, lonely feeling in AA like it was all of you and then there's me. And all I can do is pretend here and I know I'm the phony guy. I try to talk about being happy and being everything that you are, and I know I'm the phony guy here because nothing has really changed within me. And I can't take it anymore, and I go on my last run, and I now I'm facing two years in a state penitentiary, and I have no place to live, and I'm living in this park. And I don't want to do this anymore. I got to a place that it talks about in a vision for you where you can't imagine life with it anymore because I can't jumpstart the party and yet I can't imagine life without it either because abstinence is just it's it's such a depressing lonely place for me and I feel like I'm stuck and so I went to a bridge with a bottle of Richard's Wild Irish Rose to take my life and I'm not a suicidal guy but if drinking sucks and not drinking sucks Suicide can start to look like a good idea to me because it doesn't look like there's door number three. And, I've been, and I don't get that AA is door number three. I don't get that. Because I've been to AA meetings and I don't, that, I don't think that you have an answer for me. I remember one time in a halfway house saying to I was just so depressed and bored and I just feel awful. Saying to this old timer, what do you do for fun here? He says, oh, we go to a lot of
1: meetings.
0: (laughs) He says, anything else? He says, well, about twice a year, we have an AA dance. You ever been to an AA dance with untreated alcoholism? I remember doing that one time. They took me in the van from a halfway house into an AA dance, and I'm standing plastered against the wall with that remembering why I used to drink. A pint of whiskey. This would have been a good dance. This is not a good dance. This is all. This is torture. I can't imagine life without alcohol, and I can't imagine life with it. You know, if AA to me had good news and bad news, the good news is that maybe if I went to thousands of these stupid meetings, I'll stay sober the rest of the light my life. And the bad news, I'm going to live a long time. So I went to this bridge and I'm just I'm just done. I don't I just want this to stop. I just want it to stop. No more. But I'm a coward. Then I've always been a coward. I can talk a good game and I can act tough in, in the jail cell in the cell blocks and on the streets, but I'm always been a coward really. And I'm af- I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'll, it'll hurt or something. I don't know what I'm afraid of. I just the very last moment I I can't jump, and I slam my break my hand on this piece of metal on that bridge, and I started sobbing uncontrollably, cursing myself for being a coward. Little did I know that that was my last run. It would have never occurred to me. Little did I know that, uh, as it talks about, as Bill talked about, I was about to be rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. I didn't know what that was. You know, I. I was sponsoring this bright guy who's a professor taught astronomy and biochemistry and physics, a science teacher. And I said to Rob, I said, Rob, what's this fourth dimension? That sounds kind of science fictiony. What's that about? And he said to me, he says, Well, a lot of physicists recent this, this centuries, uh, started coming up with the theory that there was four dimensions. He says, actually, now we think there's even more than that, but Einstein and some of those guys said there were four dimensions. He said, in the beginning, they used to think that there was three dimensions. The dimension of width, uh, the dimension of height, and the dimension of depth. And he said, Einstein said the fourth dimension was time. So being a self-centered alcoholic, I thought, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that have to do with me, Really? And Rob said, Well, maybe you've spent your whole life worrying about the past or anguishing over the future. Maybe if you were to enter the fourth dimension, you'd hear this loud pop as your head came out of your butt and you just show up in your life all of a sudden. (laughs) And, And that's why the old timers when I was new in sobriety, in this in this struggling to put the steps in place in my life, which is it's a very painful process for a guy like me. And it's a very painful process, this staying sober before you turn the corner. It's a hard deal. And the new guy would go to my first sponsor, and I'd be crazy. I'd be nuts. And I'd just be spewing out all these things I'm afraid of, and it's going to happen, and then by next week, and then I'm probably going to go to prison. And, and he'd say to me, he'd say, but right this second, this moment, is everything all right? Well, yeah, yeah, but by next weekend, no, no, he said, no. This second is everything all right. Well, yeah, but, but I'm gonna be out of a house. I'm not gonna have a place to live. And it, no, no, this second is Well, yeah, he said, good, okay. When it's no longer good, this second, we we'll got something to deal with here. And I didn't what he realize. What I didn't realize is he is trying to center me in the only place. That I will find God. It talks about it in chapter 5. There's one who has all power, that one is God. May you find him in a place that most of us never visit now. Right? And as I'm saying that, there's some of you aren't even here. You're thinking about who you're going to tell that to. You're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking,
1: about, you're thinking
0: about, right? You're not even here now, right?
1: And,
0: and I'm not most of the time. Uh, I just fantasy I'll go to heaven uh, and, and St. Peter will meet me at the gate and say uh, well Bob you're on earth 80 some years we think you're actually present 3 months the rest of the time you were thinking <laughs> and if, if I got 3 months I got that in Alcoholics Anonymous and I got that I got that sponsoring the guys and really being present listening to their fifth steps and, The power of, of being other centered by my how I feel about you. Um, so I can't I can't kill myself and I I, I ended up I hitchhiking cross country running from the law because I know I'm doing two years and now I'm starting to cross state lines and I end up in Las Vegas and I'm I'm in this detox and I'm really sick and after they dried me out a little bit they let me go to the AA meetings in there and something had happened to me in that hospital and I'll, t- I'll tell you I don't talk about this too much because I'm not I'm suspect of the experience but one of the one of the counselors in there asked me I was scared to death because I really was done I don't want to drink no more but I also I'm painfully aware that I'm going to drink again I'm getting it I'm getting it of this level I'm getting powerlessness on a level <laughs> I never suspected It's bad enough to be powerless over alcohol once you start drinking. I got that years ago. Now what's horrifying to me is I get it, that I'm the guy, even when I make up my mind really this time, I'm never going to touch that stuff, that 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 it's just a matter of time. I always go back to it. Alcoholics of my type with untreated alcoholism, the question is never if I will drink again. The question is when. And some of us it's 10, 15, 20 years, but the question is when. With untreated alcoholism, I, I'm just, it's a process of throwing stuff between me and the drink, but the drink's coming for a guy like me. Unless I have a spiritual awakening and stay awake, which is a hard thing to do. I'm a sleepy kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I get just me. I get me right on here. Um, so I'm in this place and I go into the meetings of Alcoholics Times and I'm sitting there now, you've got to understand, I've been going to meetings for seven and a half years. But I'm sitting in these meetings, and for the first time in my life, I'm sitting there, and you know, I have this judgment thing, that, that I, this thing in my head I can't shut off. I couldn't hear anything in the meetings because I can't, I can't stop running a dialogue over top of what the people are saying. I'm really listening to my thoughts more than I'm listening to them. And when, I'm, when you're doing that and you're picking them apart and trying to find fault with them, it's hard to connect with anything here. But this time, I ain't doing that. This time I'm just sitting there and I'm just so demoralized, I, I'm open. And I found myself sitting there and nodding my head as I'm listening to him and thinking secretly to myself, "My oh God, I'm like that. I'm like those people. I, I drank like that. I failed like that. I, uh, I hurt like that. And yet I looked at these people and they weren't like me anymore. They were they were those guys that were happy and sober. And this counselor said to me, she said, she said, so how you doing? I said, oh, I'm doing great. I was doing terrible.
1: <laughs>
0: I said, I'm doing great. She said, well, what's different? You've been in and out of treatment centers and places like this for, for all these years. What's different now? And I didn't know what to say to her. So I said to her, I just pulled it out of the air. I said, well, I just took the third step. Now, I don't know what the third step is, but it's a, it's a it's an AA sounding kind of thing to say. And it was good. I mean, it was a good good thing. She she write enough? She said, really? Oh, that's great. She said, did you say the prayer on page 63 in the big book? And I was almost said yes, but I was afraid she was going to ask me what the prayer said and I'd be caught. And I, I said, no, no, I just kind of did it my way. Then she gave me this look like like there, I wanted to see if I'd spilled something on myself. You know, this, this look of and I, I didn't think nothing of it. Moved on, and I'm in this. i sitting on my bed one day, and they're getting ready to dis- discharge me, and I am terrified because I know I'm going to drink again. It may not be the day I get out. Maybe I'll put it off. Maybe if I'm lucky and I, I I can put it off a couple months. But I know the truth. I don't have what it takes. No matter how much I make up my mind. This whole thing about just don't drink, no matter what. <laughs> man. If I could do that, I wouldn't be here now. <laughs> really, but I am not that guy. And I start. I to read. I'm just. I'm just so demoralized. I remembered for some reason she said page sixty three. And I opened the big book to page sixty three. In the middle of the page is this prayer, and it's. It's not. It's a funny kind of prayer. It's got those old ancient words like the and thou and all that stuff. And I started reading. I don't get it. I, it's, and then there's a line in the middle of the prayer that says, Relieve me of the bondage of self. And when I read that line, something happened to me. And I can't even put it into words. I, and I threw that book across that hospital room and I started sobbing. And I guess on some level that I wasn't even consciousness, conscious of, I guess I must have <coughs> known that when I said, Relieve me of the bondage of self, I, started, I guess I knew that the reason I will drink again and the reason I will probably take my own life, and the reason I've burnt my life to the ground, and I continue to do that, is because of me. And I can't get away from me. And I can't change me. And, and it, not from a lack of trying. But I can. not And I've been to the best psychiatrists. I've tried the medications. I've tried religion. I've tried churches. I've tried. I've tried those weekend seminars that just change your life for about two weeks. <laughs> and I started sobbing and from, I got, fell down onto my knees and from the bottom of my heart I, to a god i don 't even i suspect i don 't even know if it 's there or not. I begged something to happen. I begged this God for help and something happened to me, and i don't know i don 't know what it was I suspected the experience it may have been, it may be a combination of extreme repressed emotions and dts i don 't know. Or maybe I had some kind of spiritual deal, I don't know. But I'll tell you what came out of the experience was a knowledge that if I could throw myself into Alcoholics Anonymous as obsessively as I threw myself into drinking and trying to arrange life to suit myself, that maybe I would be all right. Maybe I could survive this thing. And I got out of that hospital and I started going to... I, I went to 15 meetings a week. And I went to 15, and and when I'm not in a meeting, I'm in a coffee shop with somebody talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm doing that because I can't be by myself. Right? Because I'm with myself, I'm in the presence of somebody that ain't real big on me. (laughs) I got this mind that just won't leave me alone. It just. It just just starts crazy, and, and you're, my thinking is not—it's not—you can't even tell anybody about it because it's so it's so childish and <laughs> pathetic and stupid. But it never lets up. You know, I can walk into a meeting. Ever had this happen? Walk into a meeting or big meeting, don't know anybody there, just like just. Everybody, feel like everybody's looking at me. Where am I going to sit? I'll sit over there. No, don't sit over there. They'll think you like them. Don't sit over there. No, I'll sit over there. No, well, then, now they saw you looking over there. Now if you don't sit over there, now we're going to sit Now they saw you looking too. Okay. I'll sit back. I end up in the back of the room spinning in my head until I eventually can't stay in the meeting because I know everybody's thinking stuff about me. Right? It's just crazy stuff. So I, I used to get... This will sound ridiculous. i tell you... My first year of sobriety, I was dying of cancer seven, eight hundred times. I'm not, that's not exactly, every time I get an A, every, I don't get headaches, I get brain tumors, you know, I just, I can't tell you how many, just, just deep, dramatic deathbed speeches I've made up in my head as the people from AA come into the hospital, oh, just does. oh, they're good, they're just to big, a tear to your eye, they're just great. Uh, So I'm nuts. So I got to go to a lot of meetings and I'm trying to put these steps into place and I I got sober at a time that I think of as the dark ages and I, I knew, I'd heard some, I went to conventions, I heard speakers talk about the 12 step process in this book and yet I lived in a community where everybody's trying to work the steps out of the 12 by 12. And I tried my first couple years. And what kept me physically sober for my first few years is I went on a lot of 12 step work. And I went on a lot of 12 step work. And I got real involved in the fellowship. And I'll tell you something you work with enough other alcoholics, it may not get you, it may not do what you need to have done, but it can keep you physically sober for a long time. And I had an experience, I'm trying to. I'm the guy that when I cry, I'm prone to deep, deep depressions. I had a psychiatrist one time. Two, I actually had two psychiatrists tell me I'd probably have to have some kind of medication all my life. And I stand before you and I have taken nothing, nothing in all these years. But, but that, I'll tell you, that requires a, a high level of involvement in three things, in trusting God, in cleaning house and in helping others especially in order to be relieved of the bondage of self. That which is when when this doctor's see when I get into these depressions, it looks like clinical depression. And it looks like, you know, and the guy with some kind of chemical thing, but it ain't. It's the depression of the superly overly self involved. I just get my life and my emotions kinda on me like this, like that creature an alien that attaches itself to your face, right? And what happens is that my spirit starts to wither and die because I am suffocating myself with myself and my own feelings and me, and I can't. And, and when you're like that, it's horrible because there's a loneliness that comes with that. Because it looks like the world is so far away, and I didn't realize that self, no, self-centered people like me don't never feel like we fit out here. Because the truth is, I ain't out here. I'm up here. I'm looking in the wrong direction. And I'm, I'm sober a year and a half one night, and I'm sinking into a deep depression. And I've been to two meetings that day. And I don't know what to do. And it's, it's about 10, almost 10 o'clock at night. And I asked God, I said, God, please help me. And I, I don't know. And I look at the clock, and I, I, I'm so, you de- ever been so depressed that you feel like you weigh a thousand pounds? I can't get off the sofa, I am dis- I'm disabled by my emotions and I look at the clock and it's almost 10 o'clock and there's a meeting at 10.15 not too far from my apartment so I don't know if it was a, uh, God's grace or a combination of God's grace and a, an a extreme, extreme effort of will I muscled myself off that sofa I shuffled out to my car like a mope I got in that car I drove to that meeting I'm sitting in the back of the meeting and I, I don't hear nothing because I'm thinking about my life I'm still a victim of a delusion that I can rest happiness and satisfaction out of this world by managing well, which means I will think myself to some level of betterness, right? If you ever try to think yourself out of a depression? It's like trying to dig yourself out of a hole. You just go deeper, and the more I ponder my life, the bleaker it is. The more you know to get into that, everything looks just terrible, and the job I got's never going anywhere, and I'll always be alone and I'll never get laid and I'll never have anything and nobody else. Have- ever loved me and, 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 when it's, it's, and I don't know what it is about me that when I'm depressed like that and really self-centered I, want, I have this compulsion to draw conclusions about my life and they're depressing conclusions and when you're like that it seems like you've always been that way I had it one time in an earlier bout of that I called my sponsor I was feeling awful and he says well how long have you felt this way well, I've always felt this way. <laughs> they said, No, you were great the other night at the meeting. You were fine. <laughs> well, I was probably in denial. <laughs> but it looks that way when you're like that. It looks like it's always going to be. And it's hard. And I get, I go, I sit in the back of the meeting. And I can't hear nothing, right? Because I'm the big shows on the inside, right? I'm in here honoring my life. Across the room, is a guy who's coming off a drunk. And he's in bad shape. He's sitting there and he's grabbing himself and he's rocking back and forth like he wants to jump out of his skin. And then he can't sit. And then he gets back, he gets up and he's pacing like a caged animal behind me, back and forth. And then he goes into the bathroom, which is right near where I'm sitting. And you can hear him dry heaving in there. And I'll tell you, this guy's annoying the crap out of me. I'll tell you, I, I, I got problems here. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out my life. I, I have this illusion. I'm about to figure it out. I'm about to come to some kind of deal. And, and this guy's just distracting me. And I, the meeting's over. I've heard nothing in the meeting. And I, this guy, Charlie P., is the secretary. And I stay after, like, because I've been trying to do service. And I stay after, and I'm trying to set the chairs up with with Charlie, and, and him and I are the last two guys to leave Duffy's, and we're standing on the front uh, front of the thing, and he's locking up, and Charlie's on his way to work, because he's got to work the uh, graveyard shift, and, and I'm looking over, and this guy, who's coming off the drunk, is laying on the ground in front of my car. I will have to step over him to get in my car and go home and finish thinking, right? Which... Which I would have done, except Charlie's there. And Charlie's going, oh, what about this guy? You know? And Charlie's got a big mouth. If I step over this guy and go home, he's going to tell everybody in AA what a lousy member I am. <laughs> so I go over to him, and I say, you know, how you doing? And he's a, he's a mess. He's peed his pants. He smells. and He's pitiful. And he doesn't have any insurance or money. And he, there's no, At this time in Las Vegas, they, they hadn't opened the WestCare Detox yet. And there was a period of a little maybe a couple years where if you didn't have insurance or money, man, you were in trouble. Because there was no there was there was a care unit, but they only took you had to have big time money and stuff to go in there. There was no place to take these guys except there was one alternative. There's two alternatives. You either had to sit with them twenty four hours a day for a couple days, give them a shot of whiskey about every hour, which I wasn't in a position to do, I had to go to work in the morning and there's nobody I could get for backup, or you could take them to the county hospital. But it was it was tedious. Because you'd go down to that county hospital, as I've been on many occasions with these drunks, and you'd sit there and they'd make you sit in that waiting room for five, six hours sometimes because they, they don't want to deal with these guys. Now, they have to because they get some government money, but they don't want to because they know it's a waste of time. There's people that are really dying here. These guys are probably going to be back in two weeks anyway. You know, they don't they treat you like a redheaded stepchild. So I got this guy in my car and he smells and I'm driving down to the, deep, down to the hospital and I'm thinking to myself... Jesus Christ, isn't it enough that my life is crap? I gotta do this stuff. So. You know, doesn't anybody else step up to the plate here and AA except me? You know? you know, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna be, I'm not gonna get any sleep. I'll I'll go to work in the morning, I'll have a bad attitude, I'll probably get fired, but it's a crappy job anyway. You know? but I ain't saying that, I'm just thinking it. I get down there and we're sitting there and he's talking to me and I'm giving him cigarettes and I'm getting him orange juice and putting sugar in it and giving it to him because there wasn't any honey and and he starts to tell me about himself and he starts to tell me about the shame that he can't drink away anymore from what he did to his mom and dad who really loved him and he tells me about how much he's thought about committing suicide but he's such a coward and he can't do it and how much he hates himself and then he says something to me that really gets me he says I don't even know why you're wasting time with me he says, I'm not like you people in AA. You see, I always drink again. And he's telling me about me. And I sat there in summertime in the wee hours of the morning. And I fell in love with this guy. I don't even know why, really. I There's nothing he could ever do for me. I mean, he has nothing he could ever give me. This guy's probably not even going to stay sober a year and give me some kind of credit for something. I mean, this guy's got <laughs> nothing he could do for me except that he suffered from alcoholism exactly like I suffered from alcoholism. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I finally checked him in and I'm driving home in the wee hours of the morning and the sun's coming up and I'm, I'm crying, I'm sobbing. And I'm sobbing because I've never felt more complete, more whole, more right about myself and about my life as I did in that moment. And I finally got it. I finally got why, I'm, why the old timers from day one had been pushing me into twelve-step work and pushing me into doing this stuff, and I would do it reluctantly because they knew one day, if I did it long enough, I would turn the corner, and I would claim my purpose here. And in that light, the rest of the steps started to fall into place because I was, I, I was just I just scratched the surface really. Um, I'm real big on the uh, steps out of the big book, I especially step. I'll tell you, nothing, I don't think there's anything I've ever done next to 12 step work in Alcoholics Anonymous that's changed my life more than the fourth step in the book. And when I was, I, it took me a couple years to do it out of the book. And the part that changed my life the most is a part that, it doesn't seem like two parts that people don't talk about that much. You know, in the resentment section, it spends a whole page. It gives you seven death threats on page 66. I mean, it's just they're hammering you with this stuff. It's going to kill you. It's poison. I mean, it's infinitely grave. And then after they tell you, you've got to get rid of this stuff. It's going to kill you. And then it says, and by the way, you can't. It says you can't wish it were any more than alcohol. What the hell did you tell me for? And then here's what it says. It says this only this is it. This is the one thing. This is the course. It says this was our course. We realized how the people who had harmed us were were spiritually sick. And I got that part. Oh, yeah, they're sick and they're idiots too. You know what I mean? But it it says more than that. And then it, it says, it goes on to say that even though we didn't like their symptoms and the way they affected us, that they, and then this is the part that got me, they, like ourselves, were sick too. In other words, they're asking me to get something, to connect the dots inside me. i got to make something real. I've got to get it that I am this guy. I am this guy. I am like this guy. I have to get off my high horse of judgment, stop playing God, and really put myself in their shoes and understand if, if I was afraid, like they were afraid if I was raised like they were raised if I had everything going on inside of me that's going on inside of them and at times I do how I easily easily could have done to another human being what they did to me and then all of a sudden all the superiority and the separation starts to go away because of what I'm looking at is I'm looking at me maybe me on a bad day but I'm looking at me and I start to see how this person is like me And when I did that with all those resentments, what happened is I started to dismantle the judgment machine that was inside of me. The thing that kept me from allowing God to have my life. See, in the the section between step three and step four, it talks about step three can have little permanent effect unless it once followed by a strenuous effort to be rid of the things that have been blocking me. See, I am blocked from turning my will and my life over to the care of God until I dismantle the judgment machine, the thing that has me with a death grip on my own life that's keeping me like this from you. Right? And until I dismantle that, I'm the guy that's, that's constantly giving my life to God and think I'm taking it back. I ain't taking it back. I never gave it to Him. I still got it. I'm still playing God. And when I tell you something, uh, this, that nothing, this amazed me because I... All of a sudden, I started to the the exact nature of my wrongs was really how wrong I had been about my mother and father. I blamed them for a lot of stuff, and they never did anything out of line. They loved me. All the women in my life that I judged so harshly, and the bosses, and the police, and the people I had worked with, and I built cases against all these people, and when I stood in their shoes. And I looked at it from an other-centered rather than a self-centered perspective. And I saw it through their eyes. Man, the world changed for me. And I've never been the same since. And then the last part, it says, um, it says disregarding the other person involved entirely. I had to push. I, I am a master at finding something wrong with you. And hiding my behavior behind it—that's one of the most dangerous things that we say in Alcoholics Anonymous, in my view. And I said this for years and didn't realize, and I kept started feeling bad about it. When we say, "Oh, I'm looking for my part," no, because if you're looking for your part, this is a whole, this is a part. There's another part. So if I'm looking for my part, I'm still the back of my mind holding on to the idea they got a part too. And I didn't get why I was out of line with that until I'm dealing with a guy I've sponsored who. Tr- who tried to make an amends to someone he's talking about well I cleaned up my side of the street and he wanted he was pissed because they didn't make amends to him because he still hung on to his part. There that they, it was his part and their part. The book says, doesn't say anything about part. Disregarding the other person involved entirely. We resolutely look for our own mistakes. We don't even consider them and for the first time in my life I had to look at my own behavior not in the light of what wrongs they've done but let's imagine the book says we, we were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle am I really willing to do that? am I, what, am I really looking to, willing to look at what kind of a son I was on its own light and not hide behind the indiscretions of my parents and their imperfection? see I was the kind of guy if I, if I worked for a guy and I caught him doing something wrong it was justification to steal from you. if I was in a relationship I could find something wrong with you or maybe if I, if I oh boy if I caught you cheating on me or even looking like you were cheating that was a that was a pass to go cheat on you about ten times I mean you know what I mean I used that as ju- and then I could feel justified and the book's asking me to look at my own behavior in its own light and I can't hide behind the wrongdoings of others and for the first time in my life I started to take the responsibility for who I was and I started to clear away the things in me that had been blocking me. I didn't know from God. It looked like I was only clearing away the things that blocked me from you. But I tell you, a funny thing happened. As I cleared away the separation between me and you, God showed up. He showed up. There was an old there was an old poem in the grapevine. It's a kind of corny poem. It said, "I saw it myself and could not see i sought my god he eluded me i sought my brother i found all three and a funny thing happens is as i got closer to you and i reduced the separation between me and you is that i started to find god in my heart as i started to forgive you and understand you and love you as is I started to feel God's presence, and I didn't try to directly access His presence. It came as a result of getting my self-centered will and judgment out of the way. God showed up, and I, uh, I am like, just like Bill Wilson, I am constantly haunted by worldly clamors that keep coming back in here, and fears. And I just went through a thing, I, did, I was crazy for about a day and a half this week. I made a decision based on self and got into this one stock in the stock market for a a lot of, oh my god and I went upside down, a a lot of money in like a couple days, I mean a lot of money Uh, but you know the truth is, is I'm alright the truth is that stuff doesn't make you whole I mean if, 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 if money and material possessions were a treatment for alcoholism then rich people wouldn't be blowing their brains out in mansions from alcoholism. But the truth is, in the the demographic of of alcoholics that commit suicide, it's the highest are the ones that are very wealthy. There's only one thing that keeps me centered here, and that's a God in my life that I trust. And I basically come to the table with that because I get it, I can't trust me. I clear away the stuff between me and you, and I claim my purpose, which is to go out and help people just like me. I'll tell you a quick little story. I was up. Um, I'd, I'd like to talk a, little, a bit, about a minute about a man's. I'll tell you. I, I, get to, I don't know what it is about me. I attract a lot of people to, that come and ask me to sponsor them that are sober a long time, over 20 years. And their, their life is like really upside down. And some of these people make a lot of money, like over 100 grand a year. And the more money they make, the broker they get. Right, and they, they see the the trappings, and they think that I'm going to teach them how to manage money or make more money or some crap. I know that's their that's why they ask me. And then when we start getting into the steps, it's always the same thing. We always, without exception, uncover find unmade financial amends that they think they got away with. And every, I'm telling you, it's, it's it's to the point where I just I just go right there now with guys like that. I just go because I, I can get it that that's the deal, and in inevitability. There's something that they haven't done. I have a guy now who's uh, almost 20 years sober, who makes over 100 grand a year, and he's been going so deep into debt, and he's got four financial amends he's never made. He's made a lot of amends, and I tell you, there's a world of difference between making all your amends and making all but one. Right? There's a big difference. There's a big difference. I uh, I was up in Northern California uh, about 15 years ago and i was at this place that was amazing and these guys take this sunday afternoon i had a couple hours to kill before i got on a plane and he took me to this place that blew my mind they had these trees that were like 300 feet high and some of them were 30 feet in diameter you may have seen pictures of some of them there's some of them that there's one that has a road through it it's so big these trees are unbelievable and I'm walking around this forest, and I'm, it's very—it's a very humbling thing. I felt very small and very insignificant. It, it was like being in Jurassic Park or something. It's just—it's an amazing place. And as I'm walking around with, I'm talking with this guy, and he says, "I want to go. Show, let's go to another place where there's more of these trees." And we get in his truck, and we're driving for a while, and we're driving through these meadows to this other place where the trees are. And he says, "Do you notice how there's none of these 300-foot trees?" standing all by themselves in these meadows. I said, yeah, how come? He said, well, it is their <coughs> it is their nature to aspire to grow to such magnificent heights that they, what happens is they, they outgrow their root system, ability to support them, and they literally will topple over on their own magnificence. He said, what happens is they grow up in these groves and they intertwine... Their roots into a net below the forest of the of, below, below the forest, and this net literally they hold each other <laughs> up, and it allows them to grow into their nature. And I thought to myself, how much like Alcoholics Anonymous that is. You see, I have always been the chronic malcontent. I have always been the guy that it is my nature to want more. I'm an alcoholic like Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson had a conversation with Father Ed Dowling after he'd been sober a lot of years. And he told Ed, he said, Ed, he says, I don't know what's wrong with me. My life's good now. It's better than it's been in a while. Kind of through those depressions and stuff. And yet, I'm not satisfied. I I have this, it's not enough. Nothing seems to really be enough. And Ed said to Bill, he said, Bill, he laughed, he said, you have what we in the clergy think of as God's greatest blessing. Divine dissatisfaction, because it pushes you, drags you, and shoves you sometimes screaming into being more than what you are. And it is this divine dissatisfaction that almost killed me in my hands. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and when I came to you, and I came to this process that started to clear away enough of me to bring a God into my life, and I had a, and I have a sponsor, and I have commitments and I'm tethered to AA. I look today just as serious about Alcoholics Anonymous as I looked when I was new. You can watch my feet today, and you can watch my feet 20 years ago, and you'll see the same guy. And you'll see the same guy through, through times of abundance and through times of fear, and I, I never change the plan. I show up among you. I'm active in all three legacies, unity, service, and recovery. And because it's a whole package here. It's like a three-legged stool. I take away one of those legs and I'm doing a balancing act on two legs. Okay. I do it all here because it's my life. I'm not the guy that's, that's okay when he stops drinking. I'm the guy that needs Alcoholics Anonymous with everything in me. With everything in me. If you're new here, I want to welcome you to AA. I don't know... If you have suffered from alcoholism or suffer from alcoholism as I do, uh, I know that not everybody relates to me. But I'll tell you, if you have suffered from alcoholism the way I do and you can find yourself as I did in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and you will get with a, someone in your group or area that knows about that book and can take you through that process, I will promise you that there will come a time as you turn the corner and start to give it away to others, where you will look around you and you will not see a person on the face of the earth that you would rather be than you. Thank you for my life. Yeah.
1: Did a good job. I kind of had my doubts at first when he let y'all see the little paper I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't bother me. It bother me. He didn't read the other four pages. (laughs) Hey, we got you something here, man. Anything else you need to say? Uh, Tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock. We've got another speaker tomorrow morning uh, at 10 o'clock. Our spiritual speaker is going to be Joy, our own Joy from Central Office. I'm going to miss that. Uh, We've got a dance tonight at 10 o'clock. Uh, well, after this, it'll be a dance here in this room. No. No. Across the hall. Mesa 1. Mesa 1. I'm sorry, across the hall. Upstairs, Mesa 1. Upstairs, Mesa 1. Alanon says. Okay. Um. Y'all help me close this with a large prayer. goodness, are Are we going down? Yeah, I'll get to